financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. The NFL season has begun, and it is time to talk about it here on Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. Uh, the NFL season began last night with a pretty interesting game, although it was disjointed. It was kind of strange to watch the Chiefs play such a awkward game like that. That's uh, the importance of Travis Kelsey. And, well, I didn't. I had a fun time watching the Chiefs lose last night in a bar, Casey's on Black Rock, that was a Chiefs backers bar. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. a unique experience for me. I've been in local bars with Bills fans and Bills backers bars in other cities. I've never been in a backers bar for another team. And a lot of things were similar. Some things were a little different. And that feeling of, you know, doom and gloom when they didn't win the game was very familiar to being in all sorts of Bills <laughs> bars over the years. Well, that's that's interesting. I didn't even think that that would be a place to go. I maybe would have joined you. Uh, that I would have been an interesting in little wrinkle. I went somewhere else, and they were kind of closing up shop, and then we got dragged in there for the second half. I did not know this. Other people, I think, do have known that this is a Chiefs bar. And he said, hey, you want to go to the Chiefs bar for the second half? And I said, the Chiefs bar? And they went in there, and it was a fun time, and then took over the AMI jukebox after the game left. Always a good time. Uh, on the jukebox Jonah Bronstein is a maestro uh, on the jukebox by the way and uh, if you've ever experienced it you know what I'm talking about hey before we get started though on the football something I've been meaning to ask you but we've had a guest on uh, the last few episodes and I didn't want to drag the guest into it although maybe it would have been interesting to hear Jeff Glore or John Warrow's take on this you know we started with the new Bronstein times bit a long time ago uh, when you were uh, a freelancer and you had all your different clients. And has do you still want to be, I mean, is the new Bronstein time still, does it, does it hit like it used to? Well, for me, no. I mean, you know, this started with you calling it Bronstein Enterprises and Bronstein Amalgamated and other spinoffs of that. Well, I and had a I, list, actually. I used to keep a list of words here. Corporation, Enterprises, Amalgamated. I had a list, and I would just make a different one every episode. And then we settled on the new Bronstein Times. Well, well, I was always partial to Bronstein Enterprises being the first one, unless you want to go legacy and call it Bronstein Auctioneers. But Bronstein, new Bronstein Times came about when it was actually rumored that the New York Times will be purchasing the athletic and you and our co-host Matthew Fairburn were not allowed to speak about it. And that was a little bit of my joking manner referencing it. Um, and then that seemed to catch on with you. And I don't really mind new Bronstein Times, but if you're asking me my opinion on it, I was always uh, partial to Bronstein Enterprise. It sounds well, more enterprising. What about WIVB Channel 4? Do you just want to be that? What? How do you want me to introduce you um, henceforth? I mean, 
you know, that is my full-time employer, digital sports reporter at WIBB, WIBB.com. I mean, we can split hairs as far as I'm not on the Channel 4 news and television uh, with anything that I do in my work role there. And I do have some other enterprising beyond that, which you still do work for the Associated Press. Still do some string of work for the Associated Press. And this podcast is mainly what I do now because I was a uh, adjunct professor at Madai University and there are no more adjunct professors or students or any classes whatsoever at Madai University. But yeah, you can call me what you want. I do kind of, you know, if it's up to me, I keep calling it Bronstein Enterprises, even though we are less enterprising and more, uh, you know, part of the fold at WIVB for Buffalo. Noted. That was a conversation that I think was long overdue. Uh, I've thought about it at the bar to ask you, and I say, no, I want to hash this out actually on the podcast. Uh, And so now uh, I've, okay. All right. Bronstein Enterprises. I think I maybe should also clarify that in my role as a digital sports reporter at WIVB or in my role as a co-host of this podcast, I'm not to be representing WIVB News for Sports, uh, you know, if I have any controversial opinions or anything of that sort, that I am actually speaking on behalf of Bronstein Enterprises and Bronstein Enterprises only when I'm one of the Fs on this TGAF extravaganza. Bronstein Enterprises LLC, perhaps you should incorporate or do whatever you need to do legally. We should maybe reach out to CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants, on getting you some sort of legal protection in case you were to say something uh, and uh, get sued. Uh, you are not uh, protected right now by WIVB or the Associated Press or the Athletic, nor am I, for that matter. Um, well, we better be careful. We should be. Speaking of being careful and speaking of being a professor at Madai. I am a adjunct professor at Canisius College of Sports Journalism also. Speaking of your role at WIVB, it all clusters right here on this Mike Williams story uh, because it's uh, he's a local celebrity, obviously. Uh, former Buffalo Bills and Tampa Bay Buccaneers receiver, had, what, six years in the NFL? Uh, came very close to being a 1,000-yard receiver twice. Uh, once as a rookie, and I think in his third season, I think he had 11 touchdowns one year. Um, v- and a very good player. Uh, and uh, it is uh, a tragedy that he had a construction accident and is now in the hospital and clinging to life uh, based on um, the best sources on this. But it's a journalism discussion also because on Monday and Tuesday, three different uh, outlets and Syracuse University were mourning his death. Uh, They had reported that he was gone. And here it is Friday at 3.30 in the afternoon. Last update is that he is off life support and still hanging in there. Um, So you've been reporting about this all week. I know you've been stressing out about it because it is uh, one of those stories that other outlets had. We were getting conflicted information do you go with it? What do you go with if you go with anything at all? Is he alive? Is he dead? So, Jonah, you've been living this for the last four or five days. What What's just your your take on – and we're obviously going to talk about Mike Williams also, the, the man um, and, the, and the athlete. But 
what's been your take on this um, this story as it's been reported throughout the last uh, few days? Well, yeah, it is a story and a situation that's really consumed my energy and my brain power this week with the Bills leading up to their opener, UB going into its home opener, football, and other things happening with colleges and high schools and Jessica Pagula at the U.S. Open, a little bit of Sabres news. But for what I've been working on and thinking about and talking to people, is all really all have been about Mike Williams and uh, first hearing about, reading about, um, what happened to him, the construction accident, the hospitalization early on Tuesday, working to try to get that confirmed, uh, talking to a number of people, people in Buffalo, but people in Buffalo who were close with Mike Williams, who were pretty adamant on Tuesday night that he was still alive and still actually, Jenna, can I stop you? Can I just stop you there before we get off on too much of the journalism? Can we just, I guess, for to, to set this story up or for what we're the discussion, what do we know to be, what do we know as of now regarding what happened? So, yeah, at this point, Friday afternoon, Mike Williams was taken off of life support, taken off of a ventilator Thursday night and is still surviving in a Tampa hospital. And, um, you know, my colleague at WIBB, Nick Veronica, has been in touch with a close friend down in Florida who's very close to the situation and talking with the family and has gotten some, I mean, I, I, maybe I should just read the quotes. Somewhat encouraging um, words to hear from uh, Tierney Lyle, the mother of Williams' eight-year-old daughter in Florida. Uh, we need prayer warriors to continue praying and spread the word. He goes hard in everything he does. He doesn't give up easily at all. And, you know, I, I think there's at least some hope now that maybe a recovery is possible, a recovery is happening, or at the very least, um, you know, when Mike Williams was taken off life support last night, he did not die in the way some people had thought he might have. And even some news outlets reported that he would be uh, dying at that point. And a lot of the misinformation stems from a dubious GoFundMe uh, that was started apparently by his father, uh, and when you hear about something coming from a father or even reading it, the GoFundMe in which he had explanations and gave information, he was looking for some money to be able to travel from Texas to Florida where Mike is, uh, asking for $20,000, by the way, which is an awful lot of money to uh, to travel from Texas to Florida. But a dubious page that a lot of the family members were upset about. But if not for that GoFundMe this misinformation probably doesn't get out there and people not realizing that Mike and his father don't have a great relationship. So in the journalism business, um, you just because it's a father, you would assume on the surface in most, in a lot of families, that's a ironclad source, but you can't assume anything. And it goes back to that old journalism saying uh, that if your mother tells you that she loves you, get a second source. Um, and that seems to be the case here is that you would see this GoFundMe, perhaps even quote it as being direct information, but it was wrong. Yes, and you can't uh, totally trust a GoFundMe and knowing who's actually behind that. And if you're communicating. With yeah, that's right. You don't even that. know if it is the father. And that also was another tan or a uh, another wrinkle on this was that there was a GoFundMe from someone who was saying it was his mother 
Right. And as it I'm sorry, out, I keep interrupting you. Yeah. That GoFundMe is not connected to Mike Williams' mother and brother who are with him uh, in Tampa right now and, and did not want to be associated with that. And I don't think wanted that GoFundMe out there or extended in the way that it was and, and certainly did not want it used as proof of anything uh, that needed to be reported. Um, but that was how I first came about learning uh, you know, the, the facts of this matter, because it actually had been a while, a couple of weeks, I believe, when this construction accident first happened and it developed over time. And Mike Williams was initially hospitalized on September 1st, which is a week ago and a few days, you know, through the long weekend um, before on Tuesday, the, the information kind of got out there from this GoFundMe. And late Tuesday night, um, there were a lot of people in Buffalo, a lot of people on social media, um, you know, eulogizing Mike Williams and more or less announcing that he had died. Um, but they were all kind of secondhand or even thirdhand sources. So I don't, I think this was an easy story in these circumstances to be fooled upon because there is, you know, a family member, a father saying things on a GoFundMe and maybe some people had spoken directly with the father. And there are a lot of trustworthy people in Buffalo who were speaking, uh, as if Mike Williams had died, former coaches and people that really should should know that if they if they are saying something like that, that it's absolutely true. But many of the people I had been speaking with had told me that was not the case, that he was still alive, he was still on life support, and, and that would be continuing into another day or two, which is why you know I never tweeted anything, and I was very – we were prudent at Channel 4, at WIBB.com, about not reporting anything until we knew – uh, we had very solid sourcing of what we knew was true. And it was a difficult Wednesday believing and talking to people and, and kind of knowing that Mike Williams was still alive and seeing more and more reports and Syracuse University putting out their own what seemed to be an official statement and news outlets confirming other news outlet reports that Mike Williams had died and believing and, and later learning that was not the case. And, and as you mentioned, it was stressful trying to report that, doing a lot of reporting that didn't lead to any thing to report and kind of going through that. And it's a very, sometimes that's what good reporting does. It never sees the light of day because it stops you from reporting something erroneous or you're doing your work. And it turns out to not be as big of a story as you thought it was. There's all kinds of stories in which we do the work that never sees the light of day. And that's important work to do, especially with what you were trying to find the truth out. I mean, you don't want to be out. You don't want to have said that somebody is dead when they're not uh, thinking back at when Joe Paterno was near the end, there were media outlets tripping over themselves to try to break that story. And I think it was CBS sports was, was out there a, a couple of days early that uh, Joe Paterno was dead and his son had to make a statement that my dad is very much alive. Yeah. And you know, it was a lot of difficult conversations with, there was some confusion. There are people that I spoke with through Tuesday, Wednesday, and even into yesterday and today that don't know. And they're asking me questions. They're hoping that I can answer more definitively. And a lot of people are grieving. You know, there are people that did believe Mike Williams died and people who are emotionally processing this as a death, even if it has not officially happened yet. So there was a lot of that baked in. It was, I mean, We've done this. We've we've written obituaries before people have died um, when they're sick or ill or very old, and, and you expect that that will be 
needed to have on the ready uh, when something happens. And, you know, Tuesday afternoon, I wrote an obituary for a 36-year-old who I watched, you know, play high school basketball very early in my career. He's I played basketball against him at the Gloria Parks Youth Center, and he's he's younger than me, younger than you and a lot of people. So it was very – that was a very weird – uh, you know, emotional situation. And, and it's been encouraging to learn that, that he is still alive, still surviving into today, but it's still been, uh, you know, I think a sad story for a lot of the people I have been talking with that were given remembrances. There's, there's, I have quotes in files or we have stories ready to go of people, you know, eulogizing Mike Williams, believing he was dead on Tuesday or Wednesday. And, you know, that's being waited to publish until something does or does not happen. Or I guess it won't be published if it does not happen. But what do you recall of Mike Williams? I actually covered one of his high school games back when the uh, uh, the NHL was in a lockout, and I turned into a general assignment sports reporter for the Buffalo News that uh, season. And I covered a Harvard Cup game with Mike Williams in it. He clearly was a, a man among boys, uh, especially at that time. Uh, city football was not high quality and here uh, a future nfl player uh was was dominating uh over at uh, all high stadium but you you saw him a lot but basketball and football uh what are your your recollections of of mike williams and how great of an athlete he was uh, coming out of of buffalo and syracuse well he's a he's a harvard cup yale cup city of buffalo buffalo public school legend in terms of how much he was able to accomplish while playing for Riverside high school and then going on to Syracuse and playing football there and, and breaking Marvin Harrison's records, being second all time and touchdowns there still to this date and walking out of the basketball team. He attempted to maybe be a two sport athlete at Syracuse. He is, uh, he's the highest drafted Harvard cup or Buffalo public school player in the NFL. And probably the best I'd have to think back and look and, and parse years, but I think he's the most accomplished city athlete in the NFL. And when I, I did not cover any high school football games that Mike Williams played in at Riverside. I did cover a number of basketball games and then I saw him play at Syracuse and in the NFL, obviously. But what I was struck with from a lot of the people I've talked to over the last couple of days, even football players, Naaman Roosevelt, Dominic Cook, people like that. And then my own recollections is how respected and revered Mike Williams was as a basketball player who was able to do play in basketball at Riverside and, in, nine, in 2006, when Mike Williams, or I, I believe it was 2005, led uh, Riverside to the Harvard Cup Football Championship and the Yale Cup Basketball Championship, that was the first time in 22 years that any city school had done that in the same year. And he was the best player on both teams. And he had um, the matchup between Riverside High School and Niagara Falls High School when Niagara Falls was number two in the country that year. And Riverside almost beat him simply because Mike Williams could match up against Paul Harris and that made it a fair fight between those two teams. And, you know, that was a, a good game. And part of what I think led to Mike Williams trying to play basketball at Syracuse and be a teammate with Paul Harris and Johnny Flynn. He played AAU basketball with them. And I spoke with Mike McDonald last night, and he was uh, kind of proud to say he was the first coach to offer Mike Williams a scholarship, and that was to play basketball at Canisius. I think if Mike Williams wasn't able to go to Syracuse, we might have seen him playing both sports at UB. That was a school he considered in his recruitment. And then you know, while we're talking that. about his his uh, flirtation with basketball at Syracuse, can you get into that a little bit more? Because I don't think I know that story as to how he decided to give it a whirl, how why it didn't take 
um what, what what's do you know um, the ins and outs of that well so here's what i know he was recruited and he was given a football scholarship so he was recruited by the football coaches and that was a football scholarship but he had stated his intention to try to play both sports and malik campbell was another player from the city of buffalo about four or five years earlier who had played football and basketball at syracuse so i think jim Beheim, being the basketball coach knew that that could be a possibility if mike williams um put in the work and the time and and tried to do it because it can be difficult to play both sports um, but he had the ability and the athletic ability and he did walk onto the basketball team in 2007 so i believe that was after his freshman football season and was a walk-on player and a appeared in four games and was a practice player. And I, and I know he was on the team and on the bench and in uniform for that season. He did not return for the next season of basketball. And that also coincided um, later on with, you know, he wasn't on the Syracuse team in 2009. And that was an academic situation. And, and I think just the ability to play both sports and remain academically ineligible in order to play even one of the sports, but definitely both sports and the time management wasn't possible. And he was a, a very important football player. So he has to play the full football season before he can go practice with the basketball team. And then you get into the spring, March Madness, and that's spring football. So I think it's difficult for any player to do that. You don't see that very often, especially at any Power 5 school. And Mike Williams almost was able to do that. And a, a lot of people that I had talked to, even Dominic Cook, who was a University of Buffalo cornerback, at the time, guarding Mike Williams in football games when UB played at Syracuse in 2007. Last night, to me, he was saying, you know, the one thing I regret is that he didn't play basketball at Syracuse. I really wanted to see that and see how good of a basketball player he could have been. Naaman Roosevelt, who was a football uh, rival and teammate, I think, in youth leagues. Um, another thing, he, you know, his foremost memory to me that he expressed to me was getting dunked on by Mike Williams in a Martin Luther King game at Buff State when St. Joe's played Riverside. So there was just a tremendous amount of respect <laughs> for Mike Williams' basketball ability. And I think it's, you know, we talk a lot about like when Dalton Kincaid gets drafted about how there's crossover between these different sports, especially receivers and tight ends and basketball players and basketball players who can rebound, which is something that Mike Williams was excellent at. And I think that went hand in hand. I think Mike, Mike Williams' basketball ability and success and practicing with the Syracuse basketball team for a season uh, helped make him an even better football player and, and more dynamic of an athlete. Is that your best uh, interaction with uh, like a, a future star? I mean, like, you know, that's a that's a good barroom conversation. I don't know that we've ever had it about like something that you did or you were on the court or on the field with so so and so. And well, I mean, I'll tell you, I got dunked on by Mike Williams, but it wasn't like I jumped and tried to block his shot. I was just standing there, and Mike Williams went soaring up and around and you know <laughs> to the hoop, and I was still standing there looking the other way when Mike Williams was just swinging from the rim, but. You know, I, I've seen, I've been on the court, and I've, I've been up close watching Mike Williams play basketball, and he was just a tremendous, the strength and speed combination. He was only six foot two, but he could play basketball like a much taller and stronger and larger player. I think he played football like that as well, and just kind of being on the floor and seeing, seeing that he was not very tall and was not very big and wide, but took up a lot of space and could really, uh, you know, control the paint and control the basket area with his strength and speed and quickness and ability and I think even that beard played a role in right. People wanted to go rebound with them. Strong chin. 
He had a strong chin. So do you, by the way. You have a Mike Williams-style beard. Somebody told me that last night. They were saying something about, you know, wanting to be on my side in the fight because of how square my jaw is. And I'm thinking, it's just a beard. That's just the barber doing it. It absorbs part of the blow. That's why some boxing, uh, uh, some um, athletic commissions don't allow you to have the beard uh, in, uh, in boxing or mixed martial arts. Uh, because it's uh, it's a cushion. All right. Well, I'll take it. But what uh, some boxers like to do, uh, Johnny Tapia used to do it, is about three or four days before a fight, he would shave his head and shave, obviously, his, and then he'd have the whiskers. And then when he'd get into like a clinch, he would rub, you know, it was like a Brillo pad. And it was just one extra irritation that he would do. Um. I digress. Um, Mike Williams is an NFL player. He was a bill. Uh, he uh, was a buck. I mean, I know that you've been writing about it. Uh, any, and you got some stats and stuff uh, that you pulled up. What, what do you, oh, well, yeah. what stood out to you when doing your deep dive high school stats and Harvard cup stats. But I mean, looking up his numbers and, and you, you alluded to it earlier, you know, he doesn't have tremendous, career NFL numbers because he only played in five NFL seasons and, um, you know, did not play a lot of games in the last season and in the second to last season, but his three-year run early on with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I'm looking for that where I wrote it. Can't seem to find those numbers, but you know, he had about, you know, 60 catches for a thousand yards and almost nine or 10 touchdowns. That was the average for his first three seasons. And he was one of the, top receivers in the league coming off that rookie year. And it, it, it didn't last much beyond that first three-year run, but he was one of the, uh, you know, he was a number one wideout in the NFL for that period of time and had that talent and ability where I think when the Bills acquired him in 2014 for a six-round draft pick, he just signed a six-year, $40 million contract, which maybe that doesn't seem like a lot in today's NFL, but back then was a big contract. It looked like the Bills were maybe getting a number one caliber wide receiver or an elite number two receiver to play alongside Stevie Johnson. And he had, you know, the local player with a lot of personality and the history with Doug Marone and Nathaniel Hackett. That seemed like it might have been, you know, a very exciting era for Buffalo Bills football. It didn't play out that way, but you know, if you didn't see Mike Williams play or you weren't around uh, the Buffalo and the NFL community early in his NFL career, you might not, be able to look at his statistics and kind of recognize how big time of a player he was for a period of time. He was drafted in the fourth round, and that was because some of the issues he had at Syracuse off the field tanked his draft status. Like he, he didn't finish his last year, right? He didn't finish the season. He he was there was some debate about whether Doug Marone kicked him off the team, which is what I believe, or Doug Marone will say that Mike Williams quit the team, but there were some team rules violations that were broken and, and Mike Williams didn't finish that season. And had he finished that season and had he been uh, as successful in that final season at Syracuse as he was in the prior seasons, he probably would have been a first or second round draft pick. And that might've led to a longer, more sustained NFL career. I just want to make sure I have it correct. His first season uh, with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 65 catches for 964 yards, 11 touchdowns. And then that third year, and I'm sure I never had a chance to talk to him about it. And maybe I should have while he was having his, uh, well, uh, during his season with the Bills in 2014. But 
in 2012, he comes four yards away from a thousand yard season, uh, 63 catches, 996, nine touchdowns. That's a pretty productive player. Uh, in fact, he was runner up for rookie of the year, uh, in 2010. Um, great career. I mean, a lot of guys can't say that they accomplished what he did. And I think if I recall correctly, some of his up and downs in production was related to who was his quarterback at the time. And that some of those better seasons in Tampa Bay, he had a better quarterback than when he did not. And in Buffalo, I believe he was there early on with EJ Manuel and maybe didn't last too much longer on the team. When Kyle Orton took over at quarterback, I believe was that that season or am I off by a year? Um, but had he been drafted into a perfect situation with his talent and ability, you know, I think he could have had a, a very excellent career. And even with the career he had, he's the second all-time leading NFL receiver among players born in West New York. Rob Gronkowski would be first. But that makes Mike Williams the all-time leading receiver among city of Buffalo-born players and wide receivers to come out of this area. Never got uh, into the postseason, but he can say that he completed every pass he threw in the National Football League, one of one for 28 yards. I don't know what the story is behind that, but he did get to throw the ball in uh, 2012. So you add his 28 yards uh, into his 996, and I guess you can say that he did have 1,000 all-purpose yards. How about that? Yeah, and he had a similar, like, you know, three seasons at Syracuse, so spread over four years and missed some games and was over 2,000 yards and 20 touchdowns for that period of time, over 29 games. So when when he was on the field, he was a very productive player at a high level of college football and in the NFL. Um, just was a career where he wasn't always on the field and, and have an extended longevity in the NFL like his talent might have allowed him to. The um, Buffalo Bills opened the season on Monday night against the New York Jets. Aaron Rodgers, uh, his debut with gangrene on September 11th, Monday night football. Stage doesn't get much bigger. New York market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this AFC East, and, and I'm writing about it for The Athletic, the story's going to post tomorrow, is going to be tight. And I think that's a good thing for the Bills. And uh, I went back and checked on a bunch of numbers regarding uh, teams that win the division comfortably versus winning it uh, narrowly. And as you'll see in the story, I don't want to give away too much of it now, but teams that win comfortably don't win the Super Bowl. Uh, teams that win by five games or more over over the second place team in the division just doesn't happen. Uh, they don't either get there or if they get to the Super Bowl, they lose it. Most famously, the New England Patriots in 2007 against a wildcard team, no less. Uh, and wildcard teams, by the way, are undefeated 5-0 and if they reach this uh, Super Bowl. If you reach the Super Bowl by winning your division uh, in a game or less, meaning one game or in the case of uh, ties during the regular season, half a game, it's happened here and there, uh, or in a tiebreaker, uh, and you reach the Super Bowl, you win. Uh, it's It was pretty interesting to go back and do that research and, and find out. So I guess that's my way of saying that uh, any agita that Bills fans have over this window closing as the 
the the uh, New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins close the gap uh, that the Bills seemingly have had over these last three years, uh, the adjective that Bills fans may have over that is probably unfounded. You should probably be excited. The whole idea of being battle tested uh, entering the postseason seems to uh, seems to bear out as as uh, as worthwhile based on the numbers. So I don't know where you are, Jonah. Uh, but uh, with the AFC East this year, uh, and it's it's funny to see the national prognosticators, a lot of them have the Bills not even making the playoffs or losing in the first round. Um, Herm Edwards, who I interviewed for this story, by the way, uh, has the Dolphins going to the Super Bowl. And the reason I interviewed Herm Edwards, by the way, is he was the winner of the tightest division in NFL history, 2002, the nine and seven Jets spurred on by his famous, you play to win the game speech when the Jets were two and five, finished the season nine and seven, won a three-way tiebreaker with the Dolphins and the Patriots. The Bills were the fourth place team at eight and eight. So the fourth place team was only one game out of first place. Uh, So that's why I interviewed Herm Edwards for it. Uh, but Herm Edwards also agrees, very tight division. You have last year's Super Bowl favorites uh, and a future Hall of Fame quarterback in Aaron Rodgers on a team that was pretty good with no quarterback. And then Herm's pick to win the AFC, the Miami Dolphins. I don't know. That's just a lot of words I just, I just yeah. laid well, out it's there. A, it's a lot of words, and there's a lot of season to be played. We haven't even started the season yet. It's a yeah, I don't think the Chiefs season. are in trouble. Yeah, it's a 17 game. Just because season. they lost to the Detroit Lions on on Thursday night, I don't think the the Chiefs are are should be sweating it out. Yes, but in specific to the AFC East, um, it does seem to be a fun conversation to try to predict who's going to win the AFC East when there's three, maybe even four, uh, potential teams. I think the Bills on paper are definitely the favorite three-time defending champions, but largely the same roster. And even in betting odds and things like that, I think the Bills come in as the, uh, you know, the clubhouse favorite or the, you know, the opening line favorite. But it's, there's a lot of games to be played and these teams play each other twice. And a lot of different things can happen. The better team doesn't always win the matchup, but that could affect the standings. They all play a difficult Uh, out-of-division schedule, specifically against the NFC East in those games, and it could come down to who plays which team at what point in the year. If, if, you know, Dak Prescott's healthy for half the year and certain teams get to play him then and not other times, things like that. That has worked in the Bills' favor in years past, maybe getting some luck against the quarterbacks they play against, and, you know, maybe sometimes things could be unlucky for a team like the Bills or any of the teams they're competing against. But – I do think it's foolish to put the Bills at last place. I think you could maybe uh, – there's a lot of different scenarios where the Jets or the Dolphins or even the Patriots might win the division. But I do believe the Bills are going to be contending for that division win and aren't going to be you know, the bottom falling out and the worst team in the division. However, one thing you re- initially mentioned, the agita and the anxiety among fans, I think that's a very real thing about this season because it's not going to be an easy ride of being – the best team in the division very early on and knowing that you're going to get into the playoffs. And even if the bills can still win the super bowl, perhaps as a wild card playoff team, not going to get a home playoff game. Most likely definitely not going to get a home playoff game in the first round. 
and it's going to be a different road and it's going to be a different fan experience if the Bills are not AFC's champions this year. Yeah, and I think that's the point of my story is that I think it's okay to buckle up and enjoy this ride. It's not going to, you know, it's you're going to have some swings uh, from maybe game to game or a two game stretch or, you know, things. There's going to be up and downs, ups and downs in this season. I think the Bills could easily lose Monday night by two scores, but that doesn't indicate that they can't win the division or that the Jets have surpassed them. I think that this is a big stage. It's a big game. Uh, you don't really know how to game plan necessarily against these new Jets, um, vice versa. You know, the it's gonna, there's volatility here. So I don't think that we should be making any snap judgments based on what happens on Monday night, although people will. Um, but I think that I think, the Bills are the best team in the AFC East. I don't think that's homerism. I don't think that anybody would ever accuse me over the years of me covering Buffalo sports of being a homer. But to me, I just, I mean, I, I understand why the national media is writing the Bills off. And it's because at this time of year, well, really any time of year, but especially at the in the beginning of the season when people are making their predictions – you want to show your audience, whether it be readers, viewers, listeners, that you're ahead of the curve. Uh, and so that's why people were big on the Bills two and three years ago. And they've been big on the Bills for two or three years, but they can't continue being big on the Bills because they need a new team. They need to be ahead of the curve. That's why the Lions were the sexy uh pick uh over the uh during the offseason that's why people are talking about the jets and the dolphins the bills are a little bit old hat and then you see we've talked about it on the show nick wright um chris broussard stephen a smith um jason whitlock people just kind of dumping on the bills out of nowhere with these strange reports about how it's all fallen apart. And it's because they want to be ahead of the curve. They want to be able to say, I told you so, as opposed to just being one of many. Uh, and so that that's the business that they're in. It's the business that uh, the media uh, generates. I mean, it's, it's, if, if it gets to be mundane, to talk about how good a team is when they're good year after year. That's why people had the Patriots falling apart uh, throughout Tom Brady's career. You were looking for the crack. You want to be able to say, see, there it is. We were, we were able, that's the harbinger. That's the, that's the indicator right there. Uh, and it just never happened. Uh, so anyways, that's just my, my explanation as to why I think everybody's down on the bills. I think they're just bored with the bills being good and not punching through. And so you need to come up with different teams. So that way you can fuel a discussion as to who's getting better. And you're looking for the stumble. You're looking for the bills to limp. You're looking for them to be distracted. You're looking at leadership issues, hot seat, you know, whatever things that happen for teams when things start to go wrong. Uh, people are looking for them. And in the case of a lot of these storylines or narratives, they're being invented um, for the sake of, of the narrative. Um, and, and whether the Bills win the division has a lot to do with the other teams that they play against and what these teams do in games that don't involve the Bills. And I think less of the attention should be on who, because it's not like you know a mid-major conference in the NCAA tournament where only one team goes to the playoffs. 
you know, the, this could be the best division of football. There could be two wildcard teams coming out of the AFC East along with the division winner. There could be ties and tiebreakers and coin flips could come into play as to who gets that division championship. And, you know, they don't run parades and put banners up for division championship. Maybe they do put banners up. But, um, you know, the, the, the thing is going to be, will the AFC East champion uh, not get through this bloody primary and be able to, and because of seeding and home field advantage and things like that in the playoffs is whatever team wins this division uh, put behind the eight ball when you get to the postseason against a team like the Chiefs or, you know, the Ravens who might have had an easier road and gotten to rest players in the final week of the season and play play at home in the playoff matchups, the Bengals. I think, you know, if you look ahead to the Bills playing the Bengals, even though they lost on the home field last year, you don't want to go to Cincinnati in the playoffs. You don't want to have to go to Kansas City again in the playoffs and it does but teams are doing it more and more i mean i mean as time back in 1980 when i was nine years old and the oakland raiders came to cleveland and beat the browns on red right 88 and then gone and then advanced to the super bowl and beat the eagles herm edwards is eagles by the way um that was the first wild card team to win the Super Bowl, and that was a big deal. But since realignment, it's happened five times in the last 21 years, and it's happened, I want to say, shoot, I have it. Hang on. But let me ask you this without knowing off the top of my head. Has it happened in this new seven-game, seven-playoff team era where it is? Yeah, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tampa Tampa Bay uh, in 2020 when they beat the Chiefs. That was Tom Brady. Uh, That was a wild-card team that won the Super Bowl. Uh, it's happened. It happened in since realignment, since 2002 realignment. It's happened five times. The Steelers in 2005, the Giants in 2007, the Packers in 2010, and then it didn't happen again until the seventh team was added uh, in 2020. That was. It's been three years, I think, with that, right? Yeah, it has been. So since 20, yeah, 2020. So that was Tampa. And the Bills in 1992 went to the Super Bowl as a wild card team. They did have the one home playoff game as a wild card uh, before going on the road and beating Pittsburgh and Miami. But it's not, you're right, it's not impossible. And sometimes that can be a more fulfilling and more entertaining and more enjoying ride to see a wild card team have a playoff run like that. Um, And not that this is what it's all about, but I do think if you're a Bills fan, you much prefer the one or two seed and having uh, two home playoff games. I think those are experiences for the Bills and their fans in that stadium and this community that uh, it would be at a loss if that doesn't happen on one or two of the playoff weekends this year. But if that's made up for with a Super Bowl trip and a Super Bowl championship, you know, maybe that's the fan trade-off for, for having that experience. Yeah. And I think that that comes back around to the, the, the thesis of my, of my story is that it's better to win the tighter division, but, Again, obviously, to win it, uh, the first round by would be great. Uh, I also interviewed uh, Amy Trask, the former Raiders executive, who raised some points about um, what I called a soft buy, meaning if you win your division comfortably, so comfortably that you're not tested, and then you have that first round by, and then she makes the point, and if you've won your division comfortably, you probably rested your players in the regular season finale. And so you're untested or not as tested. I mean, we're talking relative, relative degree. Um, You're not as tested. 
you take it easy in the last game, you're off in the bye, and then you enter the divisional round of the playoffs not having played super competitive football for a while. And the numbers seem to back it up that um, you're better off if you're sharpened uh, heading into those games. Now, granted, there are caveats, um, big injuries. I mean, tougher games mean more injuries. It means your players are probably on the field for all 60 minutes. They're not coming out with six minutes left in the game because the game's too tight and you got to keep your quarterback in there and your linebacker and your defensive ends and whatever. So yeah, that happens. You have more wear and tear. There are all kinds of reasons you want to coast. I mean, there are benefits, but it seems as though the records indicate it's better to be sharper. It's better to have been in a tougher division, but um, I know that the story will read better than I'm, 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 uh, I'm vomiting out these words. And the most important thing is going to be a team playing its best football and maybe being in its best health situation uh, relatively in December and into January. Because I do think the Bills were a team that would have won the Super Bowl in midseason last year. And uh, due to injuries and just the progression of the season, wasn't the same team by the time the playoffs came around. And if you look at even though they didn't go to the Super Bowl in 2020 and, and to a lesser extent 2021 they finished that regular season strong and that carried momentum into the playoffs in a better way than we saw last year so even if the bills maybe they lose the monday night opener against the jets maybe they start out with the worst record in the division in september or something like that um, but if they finish the season better than they started that's a better position to be in than you know dominating the jets on week one and fading beyond that and another thing if you think the Bills in the Super in the playoffs the past two years have played an AFC East team in the wild card round at home. I think with the strength of the division, there's a high chance of one AFC East team playing against another AFC team in that first round. It could be the Bills being the wild card team and that whole playing a team three times, familiar opponent, could even be the Dolphins or the Patriots, a team that they've played in the playoffs the past two years, or the Jets, a team that they seem so familiar with. And one last thing I do, this is kind of counter to everything I just said. I do think it's a very – the pressure's on the Jets in week one. I do think having – if they're going to beat the Bills in the division, beating the Bills in their home game is paramount. Getting off to a good start, taking advantage of – I think Aaron Rodgers could potentially be better at the beginning of the season than he is at the end. And the Jets need to get as many wins, I think, as they can early. And to keep the hype going, because if the Bills go in there on Monday night and dominate the game, I think it changes a lot about what we all think and even the internal belief with the Jets. Well, and uh... – to extrapolate on that, Jonah, I think that, you know, the Jets, at least last year, maybe showed some indications of having the Bills number with the defensive matchups against Josh Allen, frustrating him. He only threw one touchdown pass in the two games last year. I think it's possible that the Jets just can beat the Bills, but are not as able or not as capable against other teams. And they still, like you say, they need to pile up win just because they beat the bills doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, it obviously means that they're better head to head, but the yeah, jets, it's not, it's not boxing. It's not like the bills have the belt and the jets can beat them. And that's right. Yeah. yeah. There's still 15 other games that they need to accumulate wins. And, uh, so it's possible that the bills go Oh, two against the jets and still win the division. I mean, I, I again, I, I guess that's, I'm also emphasizing, uh, the point to, uh, to those listening, 
uh, or watching to not get too worked up uh, about whatever happens uh, on Monday night, uh, win or lose. By the way, I, I wait until the end, and I should start doing this at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, please, everybody out there, if you're if you're listening or watching, subscribe, uh, like, rate the podcast, uh, do whatever it is you need to do on your platform, uh, because these ratings, and especially when it comes to YouTube, the more subscribers you get, the more things that YouTube will unlock in my ability to produce the podcast and promote and do all kinds of things. It's kind of a it's a thing that that YouTube does uh, to make sure that uh, to 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 get more subscribers, uh, they reward you with being able to do other things. So please uh, subscribe, like, rate, do all that good stuff that helps us uh, with the platform or to uh, to promote uh, the podcast out there to the world. Um, yeah, and let's talk could, about. Even, oh, go ahead, John. Even if you listen to us on iTunes or Spotify, and you never watched a podcast on YouTube in your life. Just take a minute and go log in and subscribe and like and tell us how great it is anyways. And then you can go on your merry way and never come back to the YouTube page. Yeah, do us a favor. Yeah, this is like giving you homework. Go on every platform that you don't use and also subscribe in all those. Uh, You'll get all the alerts that uh, you'll get it five times over that there's a new podcast available and rate it. Um, You know, I'm surprised that there aren't people just to fuck with us that go on there and give us bad ratings we actually have pretty good ratings but if you listen and you get to the point where i'm asking you to to rate us and we're now 45 minutes or an hour into this podcast um you're you probably like what you're listening to either that or you're a you're a lunatic um ub football uh against fordham they open up tomorrow uh Jonah, I know that you've been spending much of your week uh, reporting on Mike Williams and uh, out at Orchard Park uh, with the Bills, but what are your thoughts on the UB's game Saturday? You know, I was out at UB uh, the end of their football practice Tuesday and the media session afterwards before kind of everything else I covered this week, so I do have a bit of a read on that game. And UB's coming off a a competitive showing at Wisconsin, number nine was. 19 Wisconsin, even at the final score, 38-17 wasn't the most competitive result. They played, they were tied in the first quarter and only down by four at halftime and played tough. And if not for giving up some long uh, runs, uh, you know, the pass defense and the pass offense, they played pretty well against Wisconsin in a tough situation. And now they come home to play an FCS team in their home opener. And the natural assumption is to assume that Buffalo, the Mid-American Conference team, is kind of going to win or dominate the game in the way a school like Wisconsin should win against Buffalo, but that's not always the case. Buffalo lost at home against Holy Cross last year, an FCS team, and Fordham's been a a good FCS team in the past. I think they played Ohio very tough last year. I think they finished about 9-3 and three last year, if I remember correctly, and could be a team that it won't be an easy opponent for Buffalo. And, you know, this is a big game for UB even though they did go to a bowl game, having lost this home opener to an FCS opponent last year, it's really a game that when you're scheduling, it's a schedule win for a Mac school. And without that schedule win, because you're kind of getting a schedule loss at Wisconsin, it, it puts a lot of pressure on you to, to win games elsewhere, to become bowl eligible, and, and to have a better record when they're seeding bowl teams and picking bowl teams. It doesn't have anything to do with winning the Mid-American Conference, but uh, more often than not, if you're going to have a good season uh, for a team like UB, it requires 
playing well and winning your home opener against an FCS opponent, which happens to be back in 1993, the first team that UB beat as an FCS at that time, Division One AA school, when they rose from Division Three, their first win was against Fordham at UB Stadium uh, 30 years ago. History. 30 years ago. Yeah, and it's a little bit it's of an a anniversary. Story. Perhaps that's yeah. the lead to your story. It's a big event for UB beyond what happens in the game because it's the home opener and the Bills don't play on Sunday. They play on Monday. It's usually the biggest crowd or one of the biggest crowds, and it's a it's an opportunity for UB to capture the energy and, and the interest of the fans. And if they do lose like they did against Holy Cross, uh, there was a little bit, I think, a hangover effect to that from the – fan support and belief. UB started 0-3 last year and then won five games and got to 5-3 and three and were leading the back. But it took them really those five wins, I think, to win everybody over after some of the disappointing losses they had early on. So from that fan perspective and belief and hype, uh, this is an important game for UB to not only win, but play well and put on a good show. And what time is kickoff? Six o'clock at UB Stadium. And you'll notice on TV, UB sideline has moved back to the west end of the stadium where the cameras are and there'll be a little bit of a different look on television and a little bit of a different feel and atmosphere when you're at the game and i believe it's been 17 years since they were over on that other side uh just to wrap up here jonah i got an email from uh, betonline.ag and just some interesting uh, nfl uh numbers here that that go to what we were talking about regarding the division what, although the prognosticators are fading the bills, uh, when it comes to betting, the money is on the bills wholeheartedly. In fact, one of the more popular bets at uh, betonline.ag is the Jets under nine and a half wins. 65.5% of the money is coming in on the under for the Jets. Uh, the bills... Uh, are a uh, one, two, three, fifth for the to win the Super Bowl. Oh, how about this though? The Jets, the Jets are up there in terms of winning the Super Bowl, sixteen to one, just a little bit behind the Bills. That's strange. Strange how that works out. Well, the but the AFC East, uh, Buffalo is uh, the favorite to win with thirty nine point seven percent of the money coming in on the bills, only twenty four percent of the money coming in on the Jets. In fact, the bills are they all kind of middle of the pack in terms of division uh, favorite. Uh, there are obviously Jacksonville is a heavy favorite in the AFC South at fifty four point eight percent. Kansas City to win the West at fifty four point three percent. And San Francisco to win the West at 61.8%. So, anyways, just to give a where the money is coming in regarding um regarding the bills in the in the future. Money, money which talks a lot more than um than whatever NFL analyst wants to say uh regarding his predictions, uh is speaks a little bit more loudly to me. Anything else, Jonah? Jessica Pagula playing for perhaps her first Grand Slam title in mixed doubles Saturday in Flushing Meadows. I mean, it wasn't the moment I think a lot of people were hoping for where she might be in the women's singles final on the same weekend the Bills were playing down there against the Jets, but still maybe a neat thing for any 
Buffalo fans who are in New York this weekend or just the television aspect of kind of watching what, what could play out this weekend. Right. Yeah. It's good. Good to add that. Um, and the Buffalo Bison's in a pennant race. They're on fire. How about that? The stadium is on fire. Oh, that's not what I meant. I thought maybe you were making a pun. You thought that. I did. <laughs> Jonah, thanks. Uh, thanks to everybody out there for uh, listening, for watching. Uh, again, please subscribe, uh, favorite, uh, thumbs up, like, whatever it is that they do at the various platforms. Please do it for us. Uh, this has been uh, a pleasure, as it always is. Thank you uh, for listening and watching. Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. We'll